And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 25 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. These are the words of our Savior, Jesus. Hear God's holy word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say also to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be faithful to it today. I pray that I would be a faithful messenger of it. I desire nothing more than to please you with our handling of the scriptures today. I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit, that we might hear it, receive it, and obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a quote often attributed to the German reformer Martin Luther, which goes, If I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would plant an apple tree today. In other words, I am so content and at rest being faithful with what God has given me right now, what's right in front of me, that even if I knew everything was going to fall to pieces tomorrow, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't do anything differently. That's a stark contrast to the mindset that says, if I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would buy a generator or I would stockpile guns and ammo, or I would buy barrels of wheat. Uh, If you're like me, you sometimes wonder what it would be like. You daydream. I daydream about what it would be like to live through some kind of zombie apocalypse or some kind of enemy invasion or some kind of terrible cataclysm. And I wonder, you know, would we survive? How would we do? Well, surely, surely we've got enough guns and ammo to get us through a part of it, right? I mean, surely, surely we're going to last somewhat through through this uh, catastrophe because we're prepared. We're prepared for every possible eventuality, except the reality is that often when disaster comes, it comes in the form of a calamity that nobody was waiting for. It comes in a way that nobody could possibly have expected. And so preparing for the end of the world in a way that pleases God might look more like planting a tree and less like building a fallout shelter, Uh, more like functioning on a foundation of faithfulness and less like functioning on a foundation of fear. 
In this section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is in his final week of public ministry. This is right before his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. He's been warning in these last days before his uh, arrest, he's been warning his disciples of the end of the world that is coming. This, this is surely going to happen within just a few decades. Life as they know it is soon going to be over. The end of the old world of Judaism, the end of the world of the old covenant is going to come to a public catastrophic end. God's wrath will be revealed from heaven against apostate Israel. God's wrath will be revealed from heaven against the generation that turned Jesus over to be crucified and against the temple, which stands in defiance, continuing their sacrifices long after Jesus has offered the final perfect sacrifice for sin. His wrath is going to be revealed against, uh, 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 from heaven against the synagogue, which continues to persecute the followers of Jesus. And so uh, through these last several verses that we've been studying these last few weeks, Jesus has said, when, essentially, when armies surround this city and not one stone of the temple is left upon another, it will be a sign to you that I am reigning from heaven. That will be the sign that you will know I am vindicated and that Jesus is reigning from heaven. After detailing these events, Jesus then gives a series of parables to illustrate what faithful living will look like in the time in between. In between his ascension and the day of the Lord, that is going to require a, a certain kind of living, where his people are waiting for the old world to finally end and for the new world of the new covenant to be fully established. And these parables tell the same story from several different angles. The master, the bridegroom, the ruler has gone away. And while his return is certain, the timing of his return is unknown. No one exactly knows when he's coming back. Some will take advantage of this delay and they'll carouse or they'll fail to bring along enough oil to last through the long night of waiting or they'll bury the treasure that they were meant to invest. Others are diligent and wise servants who go right on every day doing what they are given to do so that no matter when the master appears, they will be found working. So the wise friends of the bride, they bring oil, full lamps of oil and extra oil besides so that they can stay up and watch for the bridegroom. The wise stewards invest the talent that they were given, doubling the investment that the ruler entrusted to them. And so when the day of reckoning comes, and it's certain that it will come, the day of reckoning is coming, those who steadily labored were blessed with even greater responsibility. They were given even greater rewards. And those who were foolish and those who were slack lost even what they had been given. The foolish and the lax found themselves shut out of the wedding feast and on the outside looking in. That's how these parables go. They all hit the same beats. And this instruction was directed to these disciples and to the first century church to, to strengthen them in this truth that the master is going away. The, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he departs from the earth and he, he has given them the promise that he's returning again in judgment against this temple and against this city. They don't know when the day of that judgment is coming. So they must live every day as if the day of the Lord could happen at any time. And so the instruction then is, don't be distracted, 
Don't get troubled. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Don't get carried away with every conspiracy and rumor. Rather, be replenished by the oil of the Spirit. Keep your lamps burning. Shine with that brightness and invest the treasure entrusted to you. Resist the temptation to hunker down, to hide, and to hoard. That is the common theme throughout these parables. Now, in this final section of this long discourse, again, we've been studying this for several weeks, and so now we're coming to the end of this long body of teaching, Jesus leaves his disciples with this striking image of the Son of Man enthroned in glory, surrounded by his angels, sitting as judge over the nations. This same Jesus who these apostles have shared the last three years of their lives with, that Jesus who has taught them all these remarkable things, who's done all these astonishing miracles, this man who has been their friend, who has been their teacher all this time, this same Jesus is going to be lifted up over all creation as king, and he will be the ultimate and final judge of all things. And this is the same image that Jesus has already referred to that Daniel gave us back in Daniel 7 of the enthronement uh, of, of the Son of Man uh, and, and his, his coming in great power and great glory into the heavenlies and to be enthroned there. And in this gospel, Jesus has often referred to himself as the eternal judge. He's pointed out that that is going to be his role. This isn't the first time. Matthew 25 is not the first time that he brings this up. He's mentioned this other times. In the Sermon on the Mount, remember, he refers to the day of judgment. He talks about the false prophets who plead, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many, many wonders in your name? And he responds, he says, he, he will say in the day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Jesus uses the first person there. He says he will be the one uh, delivering that verdict. I never knew you. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And then right after that, he says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Which means this enthronement that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 25, this enthronement that he's talked about throughout the whole gospel, this rule over the nations, uh, doesn't begin at the end of time. It begins with his resurrection and his ascension into the heavenlies. And so this is a great comfort, and this is a great encouragement and a great motivator to his people. As the church, after the day of Pentecost, faithfully spreads out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and Asia Minor and through Greece and through Ethiopia and throughout the Roman Empire, even to the city of Rome itself, as they go preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as they go preaching the resurrection of Christ, they're going to meet stiff resistance. Now, there will be many who will receive them and they will, be, uh, they will hear and there will be those who believe and they'll be baptized, but there are others who are not going to receive the disciples. They're not going to receive the servants of Jesus. They will accuse them. They will deprive them. They will ignore them. They will beat them. They will imprison them. And they'll refuse to show any compassion on the suffering of Jesus's people. And Jesus says that all the nations and all the peoples of the earth are going to be judged for how they treat my brethren. He uses the word brethren. He's talking about his disciples, his people. And in that judgment, Jesus considers acts of kindness 
and hospitality and mercy directed toward his brethren, toward his disciples, he considers those acts of kindness done to them as if they were done to himself. You heard me read this for just, just a minute ago, and I know you've read this before, but listen again. He will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when, when did this happen? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When were you sick? When were you in prison and we, and we visited you? When did this happen? And, and the king says what? Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This passage is often used and it's read as a general call to minister to the poor and needy. And that's not an incorrect application. In fact, we'll consider that today. But in the primary context, in the first context, when Jesus is addressing his people, these naked, hungry, sick, imprisoned people are the ones Jesus calls his brothers. They're his disciples, his, his servants, his people. And Jesus associates so closely with his brethren that he considers how you treat them is how you're treating me. And so he continues, he says uh, to those on his, on his left hand, um, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And the wicked say, well, when did we ever do that? When did we ever ignore you, Jesus? When did we ever not serve you? When did we see you hungry and we didn't feed you? And Jesus' answer is the same. Uh, just as you ignored the suffering of my people, so, so you did this to me. Jesus takes this very, very personally. Jesus associates so closely with his brethren that how you treat them is how you treat him. In Matthew 10, he says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And then he follows that up with, whoever gives one of these these little ones, only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. That's back in Matthew 10, but it sounds very similar to what he's saying here. Jesus is always identifying himself with his people. The things he says of himself are just as true of the church. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But what does he say to the church? He says, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or is the church the light of the world? Yes, yes, both. Both are the light of the world. Jesus says to the woman on the, uh, at the well, he says, uh, come drink of me. I am the fountain of living water. I am the source of living water. But then he turns to her later and he says, if you come to drink to me, if you come to me to drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the head, we are the body. That's how closely we are associated with our King and Savior so that when you sin against the church, you sin against Christ himself. When you abuse his people, you're abusing Christ himself. When you neglect his people, you neglect Christ himself. Jesus takes these offenses personally on the day of judgment. So this teaching gives the disciples confidence that as they go out into the world, Jesus is ruling from heaven on their behalf and that any injustice or abuse they suffer at the hands of these cities and these peoples. Anything that they suffer is not going to go unpunished. 
And then conversely, the other side of that is that when the nations receive the messengers of Jesus, when they clothe and feed and visit them, they're going to be blessed by the Son of Man. And we too, we're encouraged by the same thing. We're, we're encouraged by this truth that the nations continue to be judged by how they treat the church. Jesus is still sifting the nations. Jesus is still dividing the sheep from the goats, separating them to his right hand and to his left hand. And it is still true that the life and the prosperity and the success and blessing of a civilization is directly tied to its treatment of the church. How receptive is a nation to being discipled? How does a nation respond to the call of the gospel? Those who protect the church, those who aren't ashamed to be identified as Christians, thrive and advance and they shine with a brilliant glory. Those, those nations and peoples who persecute the church are the darkest, most impoverished places on earth. When a nation sets themselves against the rule of Jesus, their days are numbered. Uh, now, the Lord may let them exist for a time because he uses them as a rod in his hand to correct, to admonish his people, but, but they are headed for punishment, everlasting punishment. So the same things that God says in the prophets about Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, all of these things, and about Jerusalem itself here in Matthew 24, all of these things will be true of the nations who set themselves against God and his son, the king. Their lights will go out. Their clocks will stop. Well, this ends, this section ends the final large body of teaching from Jesus that we get in Matthew's gospel. But he leaves them with this image. He lives, leaves them with this picture that Jesus himself is the triumphant king over the nations. He is the one passing verdicts, sending the righteous to eternal life and the wicked into everlasting punishment. This concept, this image for uh, these men is critical because they're about to see Jesus on the receiving end of an unjust verdict. Everything that Jesus says here about his brethren is going to be true of Jesus himself. Jesus will be hungry, he'll be thirsty, Jesus will be estranged, Jesus will be naked, he will endure physical torment, and he will be imprisoned. And everyone, everywhere, will be judged about how they respond to this outcast, this, this wounded sufferer, uh, how they respond to Jesus in his suffering when he's going through this ordeal. All hearts will be exposed when they see this same Jesus who was suffering when they see him enthroned in glory as, as judge. Additionally, each of these apostles are going to go through their own sufferings, their own deprivations, their own imprisonments. They're going to go through their own grave-like experiences. And they're going to go through that with the trust that just as Jesus went through that for them and with them and was then exalted over all creation so that as they go through it, uh, they also will be vindicated. And Jesus has says, you will reign with me. He's raised us up together with Christ to be seated in the heavenly places with him. So as we uh, come to the end of this little section, I want to make three brief observations on this final section of Jesus's teaching at the Mount of Olives. First, this, this passage sobers us with the reality that one day everyone everywhere will stand before Jesus in judgment. You know, many places in the Bible talk about this. Romans 14 
The Apostle Paul writes, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. That's Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Matthew 12, the Lord Jesus says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. What does this mean? This means that you and your children and your spouse and your parents, your brothers and sisters, your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, every person that you know, every person who's ever drawn a breath will stand before Jesus and give an account. Every single person everywhere. There will come a day when you and I will have to look Jesus in the face and give an account, and we will be on the receiving end of a verdict. Now, that judgment is not a terrifying thing if we are in Christ. If we stand before, if the judge that we're standing before is our friend, our king, our savior, if, if he's the one whom we serve, if our days on earth are lived in an effort to please him in all things, that's not a scary proposition. But it is a terrifying thing if our hearts are full of idols, if we're living these double lives of, of hypocrisy, if we're spending all of our time and all of our mental energy wondering, do they know, do they really know, do they know the darkness of my heart? Do they know about this thing that I do, this thing that I am? Do they know about this? If we're always scrambling to cover our own sins with our own unrighteousness, trying to cover it with our own fake righteousness, if, we, if we're putting on this, this false happy face outwardly, but we're full of guilt within, it's a fearful thing to know that all the deep, dark places of our imagination, all the, all the dark crevices of our deepest desires are going to be exposed to the light on the day of judgment. That's a, that's a scary thing. That's a frightful thing. So knowing that, knowing the inevitability of our own day of judgment, right now we confess our sins. Right now we take seriously our responsibility to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to grow in sanctification, to grow to be more and more like the Savior. So that will be a day of rejoicing and a day of blessing. You can do that right now, you know? You don't have to wait for the day of judgment to expose the innermost recesses of your heart and your mind to God. Right now you can be forgiven and he freely forgives. Right now you expose all of that to the light of his mercy and the light of his grace and it is washed, it is cleansed and you are sanctified. You don't have to wait to the day of judgment so that if you do that now and you are being sanctified and you are praying, God, help me to hate my sin the way that you hate my sin, you see, then that day of judgment is a delight. That day is the day we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what we're looking for. But we remember, no one gets away. No one gets a pass. No one puts off that day when it is time. Following up on that, secondly, the judgment that Jesus describes in Matthew 25 is a judgment of works. And in fact, in all the parables Jesus gives right before this, all the servants in all these parables are judged according to their 
obedience. In each story, the master judges his servants for how well they're doing what they were given to do. It's not enough to be simply a servant hanging around the house. You must be an obedient servant. It's not enough to be a friend of the bride invited to the wedding. Are you a wise virgin? That's the question. Do you have a reserve of oil? Do you keep your lamp burning? It's not enough to be given a talent by the ruler. What did you do with it? Were you a good steward of it? And that's the common refrain through all these parables. And now in this judgment between the sheep and the goats, the ones who have life are the ones who have behaved righteously toward the sufferer. They have given of themselves. They have actively served the hungry. They have actively clothed the naked. They have visited the imprisoned. They have given of themselves, and out of their resources, they have served Christ by serving the sufferer. Those who are cast into torment and punishment have hardened their hearts to the cries of the sufferer. We are inclined to gloss over and minimize any notion of a judgment of works. We maintain we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done, and that is true. But we therefore, we want to go further and say, well, we think when we stand before Jesus in judgment, it's not going to look anything like what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 25. We have ourselves fooled to think we'll never have to give an account for what we've done, or what we've said, or what we've thought, or what we've set up as an idol in our hearts. We don't think we'll ever, ever, ever give an account for that. And so when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask us whether we've been generous. He's not going to ask us whether we've been merciful. Maybe he'll ask us some catechism questions that we already know the answers to. Uh, maybe he'll ask us to outline the ordo salutis. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll be asked to explain justification by faith, and then we'll quote the Westminster Confession, and he'll pat us on our head, and he'll let us into heaven. Maybe that's how it'll go. But there are no descriptions in the Bible of a judgment like that. In fact, I dare say that all of the pictures of judgment that we get in the Bible are judgments of deeds done in the body. They're all judgments of works. This, this, this idea that we're, we're not going to have to give an account is not consistent with any depictions of judgment in the scriptures. When the Apostle Paul says, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what does he say? It is to give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, listen to me carefully. And before you write me an email, go back and listen to this part. Um, now, now, we are absolutely saved wholly by the work of Jesus. And we are absolutely saved not on the basis of anything that we have done, but what on Christ has done. But when we have been saved by him, when we are united with Christ, when we are filled with his spirit, you begin to do the things that Jesus did. You begin to imitate Christ. And one day, those works will be exposed to the light of his judgment. Good works are just faithful obedience. Good works are the working out. They're the application of your faith. When we obey God, when we do what he says, that demonstrates that we're trusting in him. We're believing his promises. We're exercising our faith in him. So you see, faith never, ever, ever exists all by itself. Faith drives our actions. Everything we do reveals what we believe. And so true faith is and always has been faithfulness. True faith is faithfulness. You, you can't say that you trust God and never do what he says because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of life. 
Saving faith is a fruitful faith. And in the day of judgment, those who are found with a fruitful faith are those who obviously, undeniably belong to Jesus. If you have a fruitful faith, if you have uh, good works, it's because Jesus has saved you. He has given you his spirit and you obey. The elect persevere in obedience. It's also important that we don't generalize this concept of obedience. So we just talk about some vague concept of obedience. It's critical that we looked at the very that we look at the very specific acts of obedience that Jesus says that he takes into account. All these works that Jesus mentions on this day of judgment are works, uh, acts of service toward the poor, the imprisoned, the hungry, the sick. Yes, the nations are judged, but nations are made up of people, people who either show compassion to the suffering or who don't show compassion to those who are suffering. The person who lives by faith, the person who is filled with God's spirit, knows what to do when they see a hungry person. You feed him. You know what to do when you see someone suffering. You're moved by God's spirit to alleviate the suffering. Now, I, I know... Uh, some of us hear this and you think, uh, how, do I, how do I obey this? And you get convicted. You're moved in such a way that you're starting to think, you know what? In order to obey this, we really ought to as a church. We ought to have a food pantry. We ought to have a soup kitchen. We ought to have a, a free clothes closet. We, we need uh, you know, some kind of organized ministry. We need an official program of the church. And we need to start an institution. And institutions are fine. Institutions can be helpful. It's a way to pool resources. It's a way uh, to direct our time and our energies in, the, in, a, in a single direction. But institutions and ministries, official ministries, can also be a way for us to feel good about exporting our responsibilities to, to others. We think, well, I support that ministry financially, so therefore I'm doing what is required of me. I've checked my compassion box, and I have no further obligations. My church, my church has a uh, food pantry, and I, I dropped off some expired cans of Campbell's soup the other day, so, so I'm good. I know what I've, I've, I've checked that I'm doing something. You see, these institutions have a way of just, of just salving our conscience. To be clear about this, um, and to... Uh, and to make sure that we're, we're not guilty in the wrong direction, we, we already have a ministry to the sick. You see, when somebody's sick in this congregation, and y'all know about it, you do whatever you can to alleviate their suffering. We already have a ministry to the poor. When you know somebody that's in need, or we as a congregation know someone is in need, and, and we have the resources, God has given us the resources to help them, we don't ignore them. We help them. And you see, you don't need an institution. You don't need a ministry. You don't even need elder oversight. You don't have to ask any of the elders for permission. You don't need an announcement in the bulletin to help someone who has a need. You just do it. You do it. And that's the church's ministry to the sick and the poor and the suffering. Many years ago, I was a solo pastor of a small Baptist church in a small town in Mississippi. And it just so happened that one of our members had a grandson who got into some legal trouble and ended up in the county jail. And they asked me if I would visit him. And I said, absolutely, sure, I'll visit him. And I took him a Bible and I shared the gospel with him. And he was receptive 
to my visiting him and asked me to come back. And I came back and I visited him. And he said, I, I've met some guys in here. I think I, I want you to meet them too. I want you to meet with them. And I started meeting with them and I brought them Bibles. And then within a matter of a few weeks, another member of our church, her daughter ended up arrested in another county and ended up in a, in a women's jail in another, in another county. And so she asked, would you visit her? So I took an older couple in my church with me to go visit her. We took her a Bible. We shared the gospel with her. She uh, uh, repented and confessed faith in the Lord Jesus. And then she started asking if we would meet other women that she knew on the inside of the jail. And suddenly, within a matter of weeks, we found her. So, hey, we've got a prison ministry. It just happened. It didn't have a name. It didn't have a logo. It didn't have a filing cabinet. We didn't raise money. The Lord put imprisoned people right in front of us, and we visited them. We visited them in the name of Jesus. We visited them with the gospel. We served as God had given us opportunity. And after many, many months we lost contacts with the people that we had on the inside. You know, people move around. They either, they either get moved to a penitentiary or they get released. Things change. The, the one girl, uh, when she was released, she didn't end up going to prison. She ended up back with her mother and, and became a faithful, faithful church member, and the Lord transformed her life. It didn't happen with everybody. But for a time, for that season, for that time, we were visiting our brothers and sisters in prison, the ones right in front of us who undeniably God was call, calling us to serve at that time in that place. And that's what I trust that faithful obedience looks like. Faithful obedience, the kind that pleases the Lord, is often, it's not spectacular, it's not heroic, you don't do it because it gets attention or it brings you notoriety, you're simply being faithful to the people and the opportunities that God has put in your life, serving them with the resources he's given you to use to do that. And the way that Jesus frames this is so helpful. When you step out in faith and you try to serve suffering people and you try to serve uh, people, the, the, the fact that Jesus says, I want you to remember your service to them is your service to me. It's critical to remember that because not everybody you try to help is fixed. Uh, we, we don't have a success story with everyone we try to feed or shelter or clothe. Many people you attempt to serve are ungrateful. They will waste the time and the resources that you give them, and they really don't want to change. But that doesn't mean we quit. We don't quit because our service is to the Lord. We're not, we're not pragmatists just looking for techniques to change people. We're not looking for the thing that solves everybody's problems. We are faithful with the resources and the opportunities God has given us to meet the needs of the people that he's put right in front of us. Our job is to be faithful, not to be successful. We're faithful, and the God who sees in secret will reward openly. One last consideration before I move on from here. We live, we live in such a land of plenty, what, what we consider to be poverty in this country is so far ahead of, of, of the rest of the world that, 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 that we are insulated from real suffering. And so it is challenging sometimes to know who to help and, and how to help them. So then it is good and it is right for you and me to pray 
for us to pray together that the Lord would give us opportunities to obey him in this, to relieve suffering, and that he would give us wisdom in how to use the great gifts he's given us. And he reveals to us, the people, that he would be pleased for us to serve. And that in that moment, when it is revealed to us that our hearts would be open, our hearts would be open to meeting the need when we see it. Thirdly and finally and quickly, the last lesson from this passage that I find is that this is the image of Jesus that we keep before us. When we think of who Jesus is, we remember this, that he is presently sitting enthroned in glory, that he right now is reigning and judging all the nations. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, all things are under his feet. All things are subject to him. And that's present tense. That means right now, everything is subject to Christ. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his knowledge. He knows all of the dark things in all of the dark places, all of the conspiracies. He knows all the machinations of the wicked. He knows all the scary and dangerous things that we don't even know about yet. And no one, no one is going to get away with anything. The disciples are shown this reality so that they could go forward in this confidence that their brother, their friend, Jesus, had suffered right alongside of them and continued to be intimately aware of their situation and would, at his appointed time, vindicate his people, that he would deliver them. And when their work was done, he would pluck them out of this life and raise them up to sit in the heavenlies with him. So that means our sufferings, our frustration, our challenges are not going unnoticed. Our Lord Jesus sees and hears everything. He even knows the interior of every heart and every mind so that every injustice is going to meet the day of judgment. Every worker of iniquity will stand before his throne and every matter is going to be judged thoroughly and perfectly adjudicated. So what does that mean for us? Well, we don't have to be overly vexed about what is fair and what isn't fair. We don't have to be consumed in worry over wicked people getting away with things, over dark conspiracies and wicked deeds. All evil, all wickedness has an expiration date. And when the judge of the earth says it's over, it's over. He moves in judgment, he wraps it up, he snuffs it out in his own time on the day he is appointed. You and I, in the meantime, while we're waiting for deliverance, or we're waiting for judgment, you and I have a job to do. So that same question, if you knew the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do? If you knew the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do? Would you make a, a YouTube video exposing whose fault it is, whose fault the world's ending is? Would you hole up in your fallout shelter, uh, taking inventory of your ammo boxes and your five-gallon uh, buckets of rice? Is that, what, is that what you would do? Or would you do the thing you're busy doing every day, which is feeding the hungry, taking in the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and in prison. Because those are the things we know are gonna get brought up on the day of judgment. <laughs> we have on 100% confidence that those things are gonna be brought up when we stand before Jesus as judge. And we know that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have saved us. Father, you have delivered us from death to life by the work of Jesus. So fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might imitate the works of Christ, that we might please you in all things, that we might relieve suffering wherever we find it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.